Hey there, friends. Welcome to Season 4 of Drew Blood's Dark Tales. Another day, another season, right? Hey, speaking of four seasons, you think this show will outlive Frankie Valley? Good question, Chester. I think he's lip-syncing, but what the hell do I know? Pretty damn perceptive for an alligator, don't you think? Come on in, friend. Mmm. Alright. First cigarette of season four. So tonight we open the new season with veteran Drooby Brothers, W.B. Stickle, and DJ Montano. That's right. So smoke them if you've got them and drink those glasses to the bottom, y'all. Cause old Drew Blood has a couple of tales to tell. Oh, hey. I didn't see you there. You know, Drew Blood's Dark Tales is only one of the many shows on this network you could be listening to. We hope you'll subscribe to our entire lineup, including Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, Scary Stories Told in the Dark, Fear from the Heartland, and Horror Hill. All available on YouTube or your favorite podcast platform. Also, visit simplyscarypodcast.com to become a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you get our entire catalog ad-free and available to download or stream. A bargain. And now, back to the show. For tonight's first story, we welcome back another star of Season 1, DJ Montano. You last heard him in Season 3, Episode 6, Killer Queen. He also brought us the Oriental and Frozen Souls, all fan favorites. So, without further delay, I give you, from the Big Teal Day himself, the Hanging Tree. A dozen torches cast an orange glow on the thick layer of fog resting atop the marshy bayou. My father paddled our wooden canoe smoothly along the glossy black river. Towering cypress trees overgrown in moss gave a ghostly look to the swamp. It surprised me how terrifying a river that I was unafraid of in the daylight could look in the dark. My hands gripped the side of the canoe so tight my fingers ached. Calm yourself, young one. Your racing heart and fear will draw the Ruguru to us. My father's voice came out low and warm, reassuring me that I was safe. I'm sorry, my Miko. I will become still like the water, I said, looking back at him. His eyes were narrow but sharp like the hawk. His stony visage remained unchanged as the oar slipped in and out of the water with each stroke. My son, I am not only your Miko, your chief, but I am also your father. It is my duty to teach you our ways so you can survive in the world, he said. I nodded in return. Excuse me, the young man chased to our village said. Yes. What on earth is a Ruru? Fumbling desperately as he tried to say the name. A Rugaru, my father finished in the same low voice he had spoken to me in. The Rugaru is a shape-shifting beast. 
He most often appears as an enormous wolf that can walk like a man. They have been said to take other forms to trick us as well. Rugaros are vengeful, ravenous, and angry creatures that can only satisfy their hunger and bloodlust through human flesh. This beast sounds like a true demon, the accused man said. They are the worst kind of spirit creature. This monster has a vast emptiness inside that can never be filled. My father continued as he rode along, looking straight ahead into the fog and pitch black night. If these creatures are so bloodthirsty, how come they don't come into your village at night and slaughter you all? How do you know they're real and not some foolish legend passed down during your evening stories? The young man twisted and wiggled as he winced. The ropes Mayor Mercier used to bind him were chafing his wrists. The shaman, our high priest, has placed talismans on the trees surrounding our village. These keep the creature at bay. At night, we see their glowing red eyes peering around the trees. They howl like any ordinary wolf but they also imitate the cries of small children. They attempt to turn our compassion against us, to lure us to our death. Beads of sweat dotted the prisoner's forehead. That, that sounds like a ghost story you would tell kids to keep them from wandering off in the dark, he said, gripping his knees tight and trying to contain his fear. I don't think you understand, stranger. Whether you believe in them or not makes no difference. If they catch you, they will devour you. My father leaned forward and pointed across the young man's face. His eyes followed along my father's arm and followed past his extended index finger. He searched the darkness for a second until he found a pair of glowing crimson eyes staring back at him from behind an old cypress. A dark mass outlined the creature. The young man jolted back so hard he almost threw himself from the canoe. My father grabbed the back of his shirt just before he tumbled out. What in the hell is that? He said, his eyes wide with terror. It is the Rougarou and he has been stalking alongside of us for some time now. My father said, returning to his seat and rowing on, unaffected by the flesh-eating monster watching our every move. What if he jumps in the river and swims for us? The young man looked back and forth between me and my father, trying to get answers. He twisted and pulled against the ropes binding him, panic creeping in. They cannot enter the water, I said not realizing I had cut my father off and spoken out of turn. I'm sorry, father. It wasn't my place, I said, lowering my head out of respect. He sat silent while the moment stretched on. Finally, he spoke. Continue, my son. I looked up at him, shocked. With a slight nod of his head, I continued. Water is a purifying and life-giving element. The great spirits blessed it. The Rougarou are dark spirits. To even touch the water would cause them great pain. 
If a Rougarou were ever to completely enter the river, it would purify them into nothing and die. Uh, pardon me, Chief, but don't we intend to reach land at some point? He said, dropping his hands in his lap and finally giving up on trying to slip free. About time you stopped fidgeting with those ropes, you dirty thief. Mayor Mercier hollered from one of the canoes to our left. You better not let my prisoner get loose. You hear me, Chief? Virgil Mercier was the mayor of a small parish of people that just showed up one day. The priests talk about the time these strangers showed up back when they were young braves. They were somehow different from the people that traveled across the sea, but we never could figure out how. Mercier dabbed his forehead with a cloth of some kind as my father's most trusted general paddled their canoe. If he were to get free of his binding, where do you imagine he would go? Do you think he will jump in the river with the alligators? He surely will not go ashore, knowing the Rougarou is there, waiting to tear his flesh from his bones, my father said, not even bothering to take his attention off the river ahead. Spare me your superstitious dribble about monsters and spirits, chief. My only concern is that the prisoner doesn't get free, Mayor Mercier said as he reached up and grabbed the lapels of his suit jacket. My father looked over and gave an icy glare. He is no prisoner. I only bound him to keep you from shooting him when you arrived. We will see which way his scales lean. Make no mistake, Chief. If this magic tree doesn't do what you say it does, there will still be a hanging tonight. Mercier retorted. The divining tree has never failed us. The great spirits will not fail us now. He said, returning his focus to the river ahead. What is this divining tree? The bound man asked. The divining tree is a gathering place for the great spirits, but it also acts as a gateway between their world and ours. When someone's accused of breaking the laws of our people, we bring them before the tree and recite their grievances aloud. The spirits look into that person's soul and determine if their scales lean towards guilt or innocence. If they find a person guilty, the tree will sprout a new limb, grab them by the neck, and lift them into the air and hang them. I look towards the man to see his reaction. That is a horrifying way to die. The accused man lifted his hands to his neck and rubbed it. However, if the accused person is innocent, I piped up quickly. My father shot me a look again, then conceded with a nod. If innocent, the new branch reaches out and blue flower blooms are released over the accused, I said, recounting the legends told around the bonfire since I had never seen it before. This was the first time my father allowed me to join and our slow trek through the swamp had my heart racing with anticipation. Looking between my father and I, the prisoner said, So there's no way to know until it's too late? Of course there is, my father said with a hollow chuckle, clearly thinking it was obvious. Our eyes grew wide and the prisoner and I stared at my father intensely, waiting to discover the secret. He stopped rowing and leaned in close. You have to get really quiet, 
he said, placing a finger over his lips. Can you hear it? he asked. Hear what? The prisoner trembled, his eyes darting around trying to take in everything they could without moving his head. The voice, he breathed. The voice inside you knows all that you have done. This hopeful look on the young man's face fell away. You know whether you have done the things the mayor is accusing you of. Soon, all will know the truth, he said, paddling steadily, the gentle lapping of each stroke soothing my anxious soul. Silence settled back into our small band of canoes gliding down the river that gleamed like liquid obsidian tonight. Fireflies danced all around, strobing in and out of sight. A chorus of croaks mingled with rolling waves of chirping crickets created a wondrous swamp symphony. I saw in awe of all that the great spirits had given us. Moonbeams passed through the canopy and shattered into bright jewels dancing on the surface of the water. I gazed around at each of the four canoes and the pairs of warriors, notwithstanding the mayor in each one of them, facing forward, stoic, focused, revenant. My father could see my curiosity as I looked from boat to boat. To be in the presence of the spirits is no light matter, son. His voice was low but guiding. They are preparing their minds and hearts, filling each with gratitude and respect. You would be wise to do the same. I looked into the stern but loving eyes of my father and nodded. I closed my eyes and focused in on the sounds of the bayou all around me moving in a precarious dance. The constant push and pull of life and death is keeping order and balance all around us. The great spirits had always been kind to my people, providing plenty for our way of life. I felt so small as I opened my eyes and looked around, took in the full breadth of our vast world, and yet overwhelming joy for the many blessings they provided. I bowed my head in meditation for what felt like an hour, and yet strangely, also like it passed in the blink of an eye. A low rhythmic chant began among the other boats, but it sounded like it was coming from somewhere far off in the distance. Awaken, my son. We are nearing the divining tree, my father said, giving my shoulder a firm shake. I couldn't believe I had fallen asleep. I'm very sorry, father, I said, lowering my head, feeling shame wash over me. It's okay, son. Happened to me my first time as well, he said with a smirk. My tribesmen began playing a drumbeat on the sides of the canoes. An ancient song passed down through the ages to announce our presence and request safe passage. I began mimicking the rhythm on our canoe lightly at first, increasing in volume with each pass. Once I got the hang of it, I joined in at full volume. I could feel the song reverberating in my soul, like I was the instrument. Will you cease that infernal racket? Mayor Mercier protested, squeezing his eyes shut and plugging his ears. 
Wailing cries of children in anguish bombarded us from the surrounding swamp. Pairs of glowing red eyes by the dozens hovered out in the darkness, peering around the trees and from behind bushes. Every pair focused on us, watching and waiting for an opportunity to devour us. <laughs> Look how many there are now! What are we to do? The prisoner's voice trembled. There's no need to be frightened, young man. We are nearing the place of the spirits and these monsters would not dare step foot on the island. Our chief said, paddling in time with the drumming. Well, do you at least have spears or bows just in case one of them tries to attack? The prisoner looked back at my father, eyes wide with fear. To bring weapons to such a sacred place would anger the great spirits. That would be an act of hostility, aggression, and distrust in the eyes of the spirit. To bring weapons would spell doom for my people, my father said as he looked around at our fellow tribesmen in the other canoes. I hope they are as powerful as you say, for all our sakes. We approached a bend in the river and a faint yellow glow cut through the thick trees. The drumming reached a crescendo and my heart was pounding as hard as the tribesmen were striking the sides of their boat. We cleared the bend with one final great boom from the drummers. Then silence. A swarm of fireflies, unlike any I had ever seen, surrounded the sacred tree. The island glowed as though bathed in the midday sun. The tree was massive, limbs grown thick and wide. I remember thinking it looked ancient yet sturdy, radiating power, like it was the first tree ever and would be the last tree left standing on the earth. As we approached the island, our canoes gliding silently through the water, my mouth stood open in pure wonder. It was then that I realized the tree was glowing all on its own. My son, bow your head and show some respect. My father chided me. I shook my head to break the trance and lowered it in reverence. Sand crunched against the wooden hulls of our canoes as we landed on the beach. My father stood, stretched his arms open wide and lowered his head. Great spirits, we come before you, seeking your permission to enter your sacred island. We are in need of your guidance. Brave chief, we grant you entry onto the island. Two voices twisted and tangled in harmony, echoing from everywhere. The fireflies glowed brighter each time the spirits of the tree spoke. We are ready to listen and provide any guidance we can. The voice felt like it was coming from in front of me and yet all around me too. My tribesmen pulled the canoes ashore, guiding the traveler to stand before the majestic tree. Looking up, there were beautiful bursts of flowers randomly adorning the branches. The colors were so bright and vivid it made my eyes hurt. However, 
Some branches had bodies hanging from them in various stages of decomposition and assimilation into the tree. In some branches, faces twisted with pain and terror in the bark of the tree. These were the guilty souls that were now part of the tree. The traveler trembled and he surveyed this, no doubt wondering if the tree would find him innocent or guilty. Mayor, are you coming to present your questions? My father said, looking back at the canoes. I'm not as trusting as you are, chief. If the prisoners to flee the bushes, judgment, do not insult the great spirits. You are in their domain and you will give them proper respect. My father growled, puffing his chest out. Thank you, great chief. If standing in the canoe makes him feel safer, it's fine. It makes no difference. Let us hear about the young man before him. Step forward and state your name. The Great Spirit said, Hello, great spirits. His voice trembled. I I don't have one. I never received a name. The boy, kid, or orphan is what I was called. I was the product of a plantation master and a housemaid. When my mother learned she was pregnant with me, she informed him and he cast her out onto the streets. She scraped to get by, begging for food or money to help keep her alive for one more day. I I was born in some dank back alley on a chilly autumn evening. From the moment I entered the world, she saw me as the physical embodiment of her shame. It was my fault he threw her out onto the streets and was forced to beg. Nothing I could ever do would make her see past that. She allowed me to live with her for the first couple years. After all, having a small child with puppy dog eyes practically pulled money right out of people's pockets. As I grew, my mother spent less and less of her money on food and more and more on alcohol. She grew increasingly violent with each passing day until one cold winter night, I'd knocked over her bottle of whiskey by accident. The last of her precious liquid spilled out onto the ground. She raised the empty bottle over her head, and I swore she meant to use all of her pent-up rage and loathing to smash it down on my head until it shattered, or I was dead. I turned and lost my balance, fell back on my ass. Drunk as she was, her aim was off, and the bottle thumped hard into my shoulder. I scrambled to my feet. Tears streaming as I gripped my shoulder, pain radiating from what was surely a break. I turned, desperate to gain traction, and as I fled, I felt the glass bottle graze my ear and heard the glass explode off to my right. Curses and screams echoed down the alley. My legs and arms pumped as they never had before. I never looked back, and since that day I've been out on the move constantly. No one was willing to take in another mouth to feed or give a stranger a second chance. 
The young man's eyes had the vacant look of a thousand-yard stare through the base of the tree. You forgot to include the part where you stole two of my chickens and half a dozen fruits and vegetables from my garden. The mayor burst forth from the bow of the canoe. I can't fathom why you would fail to mention the very reason why we are here, you thieving swine. Thick veins in Mayor Mercier's neck bulged as he growled. His rage filled the air. The buttons on his vest threatened to burst free as he heaved heavily. We would appreciate you showing some restraint and controlling your outbursts, Mayor Mercier. Thank you, the spirit said in a cool, sharp tone. Well, I would appreciate you getting on while we are here. Mayor Mercier's words felt barbed. Loud cracking sounds broke the stillness in the bayou. A large branch swung rapidly towards the mayor's canoe. The tip of the branch morphed before my eyes into a razor-sharp spear that stopped just short of the mayor's throat. You are out of line. We will not tolerate such blatant disrespect. Do not believe that the calm waters you see on the surface lack the raging current and destructive power beneath it. The spirit's voice sent a shiver down my spine and my body shuddered violently. Mayor Mercier gave a sour look, then lowered his head in defeat. A long pause hung in the air and the moment stretched on and on. The great spirits finally retracted the branch and returned focus to the young man in question. Brave chief, please read the list of charges against this young man. Of course. My father stepped forward. The mayor has accused him of stealing two chickens as well as a number of vegetables and fruit from his property. He lowered his head after speaking. How did you and your tribe become involved in this matter? The spirit asked quizzically. The mayor and some of his people chased him onto some of the land you graciously set aside for us. He ran into some of our fishermen as they unloaded their canoes. We felt it was our duty to bring him here to determine the truth. My father continued to bow his head, but looked up as much as he was able toward the tree. We see now your respect for life and desire for truth are qualities of a great chief. The spirit's voices were light and warm. Loud snapping and cracking shot out again through the still night air. The branch twisted and wound its way until it lightly came to rest on the nameless man's shoulder. We shall now determine his guilt or innocence. The tango voices boomed. A brilliant blue glowing light surrounded the tree and the man. The wind swirled around the small island. The wind almost blew me from my feet, so I dropped to my knees. Using my forearm, I shielded my eyes from the torrent of wind and dust and saw my father standing firm, like his feet were rooted to the ground. There was a brilliant and sudden whoosh, and then all fell still. Sporadic coughing came from everyone as the dust settled. 
All eyes turned toward the young man. Wrapped around his neck, a beautiful string of orchid blossoms shone in an iridescent blue. We find the accused to be free of guilt. The verdict echoed through the swamp. That is a goddamn lie. This whole damn show is a lie. A cacophony of howling burst forth from the surrounding forest. I suddenly became aware of dozens and dozens of glowing red eyes all around us. I will have your head, Demir said, his voice deep and demonic. As his body began to pop and crack, jolting and twisting unnaturally in ways I had never seen before. As his hair grew, his body grew as well. His clothing tore as he rapidly outgrew them. His face grew large pointed ears and a long snout with daggers for teeth. Fully changed, he burst out of the canoe, galloping on all fours toward the young man's back. He closed the distance with two large strides and lunged with clawed hands and teeth, reaching desperately to sink them into the man's flesh. A wooden crack snapped out so loud and fast I thought it was a musket shot. The tree brought down a branch onto the mayor's head like a whip, and he smashed into the ground. Three claw marks cut through the back of the man's shirt. The claw drawing blood but not getting a full bite into the nameless man's skin. A startled scream leapt out of the man's throat as pain lanced through him. Another branch of the great tree spun the young man around and gave him a shove towards the canoes. Chief, it's time you and your people leave. We will take care of these insolent mutts. We have given them the freedom to roam unchecked for far too long. The Grey Spirit said. The former mayor, now turned Rougarou, snorted as it began to push itself up off the ground. I grow tired of the spirits interfering with our affairs. I'm going to rip this tree out of the ground and sever the link between our world and yours forever. He snarled. You foolish creature. It is only through your perversion of the small amount of sacred energy we gave to this world that you were able to achieve this hideous form. You and your village of Rougarou have become a canker on the flesh of this land. A pus-filled blister, oozing your sick disease and infecting all that is good around you. The mayor sprang toward the tree with all the force it could muster. The sudden uncoiling of the stored-up power in its legs sounded like a thundercrack. A thick branch twisted into a loop in front of his head, using the mayor's speed and energy to sink the loop around his own throat. Mercier tried ducking his head like a turtle, but it was far too late for that. The tree limb moved like an enormous snake, adding more coils around his body. 
The dagger tip of the branch pierced his neck deep enough to inflict pain, but not to kill it. A loud canine whimper managed to escape before the branch really clamped down on his throat. I stood in awe of the epic battle between gods and devils taking place before me. The mayor gave another whimpered call, and a chorus of howls came from the surrounding land. My father grabbed me by my vest and dragged me towards the canoe. They're coming! Get in! He yelled, hurling me towards our boat. Scrambling to keep my feet under me, I managed to clear the edge and dove in with a painful crunch. As my father's hands clamped down on the front edge and pushed us free of the beach in a full sprint, he tucked and rolled into the canoe, snatching a bow in one hand and slipping a quiver full of arrows over his shoulder in one fluid motion. Sitting up, I looked around to see warriors from each boat standing ready with an arrow drawn. My mouth fell open. Father said we couldn't have weapons near the great tree. The great spirit warned our high priest that they sensed great danger. They insisted we bring weapons but not to reveal them unless the evil showed itself. He knocked an arrow and drew back, ready for whatever came next. Mercier clawed at the wooden serpent wrapped around his neck. He tore at his bonds, ripping chunks free, the tree healing itself with astonishing quickness. The mayor's glowing red eyes bulged as the branch constricted around his throat. A multitude of howling and wailing reached a crescendo as dozens of Rougarou launched themselves from the trees and came raining down on the island. New spear-like branches shot out of the beautiful green treetops, piercing most of the beasts through the chest, stomach, or skulls before they hit the ground. One of the lucky few that made it to the ground turned its attention towards us. It locked onto my father, and in one powerful move, it leapt toward our canoe. My father's arrowhead moved towards the beast. Tracking it through the air, he loosed the first arrow. His hand snatched the next with the trained precision of a master warrior. Two more arrows plunged into its chest in rapid succession. The creature made a desperate last attempt with a swipe of its clawed fingers but missed the front of the canoe and hit the water. The Rougarou let out an anguished scream sinking to the bottom. I could hardly believe my father had faced one of those demons down. The braves on the other canoes whooped and cheered, raised their bows in celebration. My father raised his bow in response, staggered back half a step and fell back into my lap. The monster had slashed open his stomach. His guts were being held in place by his left hand. Blood was everywhere, and my mind splintered trying to make sense of just what I was looking at. My father looked up at me. Pure terror filled his eyes. He coughed as he choked on his own blood. We have to get you to the priest. I stuttered feebly. My father coughed one last time, and his eyes rolled back in his head, and his hand fell limp at his side. Tears streamed down my face as I clutched all that remained of my hero, my chief, my father. 
We are terribly sorry for your loss, boy. The twin voices of the great spirits boomed. I looked up to see the great tree fighting the few remaining Rougarou. Your father truly was a great and noble chief. The responsibility of your people is now yours. You are the new chief. Take your warriors and return home. I will finish these creatures once and for all. The mayor snickered as he still clung to life. <laughs> you are the imbeciles if you think this is all of us. <laughs> Stubborn creature, we weren't aware you were still alive. It is actually you that is idiotic, blinded by pride. You believe the rest of your pack is safe in town, but our roots are connected to the entire swamp. Our reach extends well beyond your town. <laughs> no. Mayor Mercier's eyes went wider. My wife and daughter are innocent. Leave them out of this. His voice strained against the branch's grip. Since when has innocence mattered to you and your kind? The great spirits growled. Only a short time ago you tried to attack that young man after we declared him innocent. Mayor Mercier hung in the air, speechless. He slowly transformed back into his human form. <laughs> he is guilty, Mercier whimpered. <sighs> I saw the chicken's carcasses and the half-eaten fruit and vegetables that were stolen. Tears ran down his face. Creatures are not property. Fruits, vegetables, nuts, and all the other life-given things found in nature do not belong to you. This man was starving and sought to quell his hunger. He did not kill without purpose. He consumed all that he could without greed or gluttony. The great spirit said reprimanding him. However, you used the chickens for hunting practice for your children. You helped them develop speed and agility to track and kill humans. You place poison fruit and vegetables in with their own. Then watch with twisted amusement while they suffer and die. <laughs> You're supposed to have understanding and mercy. Mercier pleaded. Look among my branches and tell me where you see mercy. The great spirit retorted. 
Mercier looked up to see so many of his people impaled or hanging with broken necks. His eyes moved through the foliage to see humans in various states of decay and assimilation into the tree. You see, my branches and bark show what we truly are, the spirit said. <laughs> and what is that? Mercier sobbed through tears. We are judgment, and to those who fell, we are the Reaper. Off in the distance, shrieks of terror and pain echoed in the night. The branches and roots of the surrounded forest snatched women and children. Mercier morphed back into his Rougarou form, thrashing and clawing wildly. I can still make it. I can still save them. Mercier mumbled through gritted teeth. As I sat in my canoe, my father's body growing cold in my arms. I couldn't help but feel sorry for this creature. The only thought it had was to save its family, and it was helpless to do so. The same way I felt just moments ago as I watched my father die. I wanted to hate it, and all of them. But somehow I couldn't muster the anger. Enough! The spirit's intertwined voices had the whip crack of a raging bonfire. Your wife and daughter are dead, Rougarou. I felt their necks snap between my branches. Mercier jolted to a stop and relented. He howled loud and long, then wilted in the wooden noose. The screams in the distance diminished and there was silence again. Everything was still. The time of the Rougarou was over. Only one remained. When your people first discovered me, Mercier, they had a song about me. Once they realized what we really are, it went something like this. Are you... Are you going to the tree? It judges all who come for all the world to see. Strange things will happen, but no stranger will you see. Then all the souls bound in that hanging tree. Enough, Mercier sighed. Just end it already. Very well, they said. The branch constricted in an instant, rending his head from his neck with a sickening squelch. The head hit the earth with a dull thud. Each of us remained still in our canoes, not quite sure what to do next. Young chief, the spirit called out. Yes, great spirits, I said, lowering my eyes to show respect. Take your father home. Perform the ceremonies and honor his sacrifice. I tilted my head just enough to take in the full view. Tree branches full of mangled rougarou. Blood splattered all over the tree and ground. 
It was a far cry from the mystical island I was in awe of when we arrived. I understand, and will do as you have said, great spirits. I vowed and turned, paddling as calmly as I could. My hands trembled fiercely. We arrived home to our village, built the funeral pyre in accordance with the Great Spirit's command. I stood there lost in the flames as drums played, and the priests sang the prayers, and I heard the song the Great Spirit had sung to Mercier stuck in my head. The terror of their power and reach washed over me as the song looped over and over. Are you... Are you going to the tree? It judges all who come, for all the world to see. Strange things will happen, but no stranger will you see. Then all the souls bound in that hanging tree. And that was The Hanging Tree by DJ Tilde Montano. A good reminder that the Earth's resources belong to everyone. Kinda. I mean, not my resources, but some of them, right? You go poking around my shit, the trees will be the last of your problems. <laughs> A little about the author. DJ Montano was born in 1985, the year of Frankie Valley's first prostate examination. He's a huge fan of all things horror-related. He was drawn to the works of Edgar Allan Poe from a young age. Horror games like Silent Hill fueled his love for terror. He found writing through the suggestion of his wonderful wife and could not imagine his life without either of them. Aww. You can find David Montano on Twitter at IntoDarkness49. You can also find him on Facebook as David Montano. I'd like to note here that Facebook is full of bullshit David Montano's, so make sure he's the one who's friends with me and Jeff Sturdivant, and whoever. The other ones can't write to save their lives and don't deserve your attention. Alright, for our next story tonight, we're joining Katrina and Evan on a surprise trip to meet the parents. Sure, this doesn't always work out the way you hoped it would, but it could always be worse. To demonstrate, from author W.B. Stickle, I give you Product S-193. Turning onto Fremont Street, Evan reached over and gently nudged his fiancée's thigh. Katrina, he said. Wake up, baby. We're here. Flinching as if she had been zapped by a cattle prod, Katrina sat bolt upright in her seat and blinked vapidly at Evan. What? What is it? What's wrong? Whoa there, lady, Evan said, retrieving his hand. It's all right. Nothing's wrong. We're just here is all. Katrina peered through the windshield at his parents' neighborhood. Oh, she said, relaxing. God, you startled the shit out of me. I must have nodded off. You think? Evan replied. Man, that's got to be a record for you. 
We weren't in the car for five minutes before you went offline. Been a long day, Katrina said, which was true. They'd gotten up at the ass crack of dawn to make it to San Diego International for their 8.30 flight to Houston. Then it was three hours in the air, another three at the airport, and then two more up to Wichita. For sure, Evan agreed. Wiping the grit from her eyes, Katrina surveyed the passing houses, all of which seemed to be 80 styles prairies and ranches. Which one is your parents? Evan pointed down the street at a brown and white raised ranch. They're cute. As they neared the house, Evan frowned and let out a low grunting noise. What? Katrina asked. The leaves, Evan said as he pulled their rented Malibu into his parents' driveway. Jesus, look at them all. Katrina followed his gaze to the lawn and saw what he meant. The grass there was wildly overgrown and bore a thick layer of dead leaves. Oh my, I suppose it needs a little TLC, huh? And then some. Apparently my dad's been slacking on the yard work, which is bananas because he's usually all over that crap. I'm guessing he hurt his back again. Katrina scanned the neighboring lawns, which were equally unkempt. At least he's not alone in the slackage. Evan glanced around and saw what she meant. That's fucking weird. They got out of the Malibu and hurried to the house's front stoop. Like the yard, the stoop surface was caked with dead leaves. Evan used his boot to excavate the welcome mat that lay before the front door. I'll ask the old man about it when he gets home from work, which shouldn't be for another two hours, give or take. Your dad would still go to work with a bad back? He's old school that way. Like Charles Bronson, John Wayne, and Clint Eastwood all rolled into one. You'll see. Katrina nodded as if she knew who any of those people were. What about your mom? Veterinarian, right? Correctamundo. She used to get home from the clinic around six, give or take, depending on the workload. I'm not sure what her current schedule is, though. How do you know neither is home right now? Empty driveway, Evan said, fishing his house key from his front pocket. They only park in the garage when the snow comes. He paused a moment to consider the gray sky looming overhead. I've seen a few snowflakes wafting around, but they don't count. He transferred his gaze to Katrina's lovely face. Any more questions before we go in, madam? Just the one, she responded. Evan took in a deep breath and let it out slowly. For the billionth time, baby, yes, they're going to be thrilled that their youngest son flew in unannounced from California to spend Christmas break with them. Moreover, when they meet you, my dear, they're going to be over the moon with joy. It'll be a welcome surprise, I promise. A cold gust came out of nowhere then and blasted them in the face, causing Katrina to yelp and huddle in close to Evan. Evan smiled and pulled back ogling her sweater and skirt ensemble. I warned you December was cold as fuck in Wichita. He indicated his tan corduroys, thick black Stanford hoodie, and red beanie. Next time, take a cue from your man. Katrina elbowed him in the ribs. Fucks are supposed to be warm, Dillweed. Now open the goddamn door. Evan manipulated the door's mortise lock and they scuttled inside where they were greeted by warmth, darkness, and an unusual musty odor. Oh, yeah, Katrina moaned. This is much better. Evan maneuvered to his right and found the foyer's light switch. 
A couple feet away on the same wall sat the house's dial thermostat. Evan went to it and saw it was set to 80. Good heavens, he said, turning it down to 70. That's new. Growing up, Dad never let any of us put it above 65. He took off his beanie, pulled back his mop of black hair, and rubber-banded into a ponytail. Katrina ran a hand through her own tawny mane, tossing the excess waist-length locks over her shoulders. You haven't been home for over a year, she pointed out. When I visited my folks after my first full semester away, I came back to find my mom had cut her hair bull dyke short, and my dad had bought a Segway. Who knows, maybe your dad's just... Growing. Growing, Evan echoed dubiously. His father wasn't exactly the growing type. The man still used Old Spice cologne and refused to quit smoking despite a recent run-in with the Big C. I guess anything's possible, and I don't think you're supposed to say bulldog. Katrina waved off that last comment and interlaced her fingers with Evan's. So, what's a gal gotta do to get a tour around here? Depends. Evan said, slipping his free hand down the front of her skirt. On which package you choose, the basic or the platinum? Katrina returned a favor by slipping her free hand down the front of his corduroys. Platinum all the way, baby. How do we render payment? Payment is typically rendered in sex before the tour, but since you're an acquaintance, we can settle it after. Mighty nice of you, sir. Katrina breathed into his ear. I accept your terms. It took a Herculean mental effort, but Evan somehow managed to disengage himself from her and walk away. Follow me then. The house was a split-level ranch built in the early 80s, with four bedrooms and two bathrooms upstairs, and another bedroom and bath downstairs. Aside from a handful of modern technological advances, such as fiber-optic cable and internet, flat-screen TVs in every room, and the Alexa gizmo in the kitchen, it had managed to retain much of its original 80s allure. My folks are obsessed with that whole decade, Evan explained. With Mom, it's all the trinkets and knickknacks and movie posters. With Dad, it's the decor and furniture. His goal is to make you feel like you're in one of the houses in E.T. or the Goonies or some shit. All the way down to the ugly carpet, drapes, and sofas. Lots of oranges, browns, and yellows, as you can see. Katrina reluctantly admitted that she had only heard of the Goonies, though she hadn't actually seen the movie. Evan's expression darkened. Are you sure you're an American citizen? Da, comrade Ivansky, da. Katrina quipped as they entered what looked to be a home office. Well, Evan said, if nothing else, I know you've seen Stranger Things, and that counts for something. Anyway, at one point this used to be my bedroom but now my dad uses it to run his side hustle, buying and selling decade-specific memorabilia. He directed her attention to the Outsiders poster hanging above the office's massive desk. Now that I've heard of, Katrina said. Been wanting to see it since I read the S.E. Hinton novel, which is awesome. She appraised the seven greasers congregated on the poster. Wait, she said, pointing to the Johnny Cade character. Holy shit, it's got that dude from Cobra Kai in it. Now I really want to see it. Evan's brow furrowed with incredulity. Of all the big-name actors up there, you single out Ralph Macchio. Damn straight. Daniel's son was hot back then, 
and you know I love me some Miyagi-Do karate. Nah, Evan said as he ushered her out of the office. Eagle Fang all the way. After showing her the rest of the bedrooms, Evan escorted her downstairs and concluded the tour outside the lower level sole bedroom. This was my brother Dave's room, he explained. I claimed it when he ran off to join the Navy. Evan pushed the bedroom doors open and switched on the overhead lamp. After you, my lady. Aren't you just a gentleman today? Evan dropped his gaze to her ass. That and I'm a big fan of the rear view. Like what you see, do you? When he didn't immediately respond, Katrina shot a querulous glance back over her shoulder and saw that he had halted just inside the doorway with his attention on the room itself. What's wrong? She asked. Well, for starters, all my stuff is gone. Posters, books, music, comics. My acoustic guitar. My skate decks. Fucking all of it. Katrina did a quick scan of the room. Aside from a coverless bed, it contained a five-drawer dresser, a nightstand, and four big cardboard boxes. The sturdy kind people typically used for moving. Except these were all glossy black with small white labels affixed to each side. Those are the second thing, Evan said, opening the nearest box. Inside, he found a bunch of white aerosol cans with black caps. He held one up and saw that it had Product S-193 stenciled on the side. Evan searched for other markings on it, but there were none. Puzzled, he inspected six of the other cans and found that they were all the same. What do you think that shit is? Katrina inquired. Not sure, Evan replied, testing the can he was holding. Only nothing came out. It was completely empty. As were the dozen or so others he tried. Maybe the other boxes? Katrina ventured. Evan checked the other two on the floor while Katrina investigated the one stationed on the bed. They too were full of product S-193. Damn, Evan said. I was hoping some of my stuff was in these boxes. Sorry, baby, Katrina said. I'm sure your folks put it all somewhere else and didn't just throw it out. They better not have. Katrina extracted another one of the cans from the box on the bed and studied the generic exterior. Kind of looks like they were made in someone's cellar, huh? Or meth lab, Evan quipped. The lack of labeling is what gets me. I mean, I can't imagine it's kosher to sell aerosols without disclaimers. Unless you enjoy getting sued. Can't speak for anyone else, but I know I sure don't. Katrina said as she tossed the can back into the box. You really don't have the foggiest about what S-193 is and why it's down here? Not a clue. I, Evan started to say before trailing off. After a space, he shook his head and said, No, come to think of it, Dad had said something about this stuff the last time I called him. He sucked his teeth and shook his head again. Dad and his special deals. Katrina arched her eyebrows, demanding elaboration. Evan removed one of the canisters. It was light, empty. It had no lettering printed on it other than its name. Kansas is a pretty boring state, but it's known for a couple of things. The Wizard of Oz, Dodge City, Sunflowers, and... Fiddlebacks. Fiddlebacks? Evan turned and grinned at his fiancée. Brown recluse spiders. Katrina's face paled. She was deathly afraid of spiders. Uh, what? 
Oh, don't worry. They get a bad rap, mostly undeserved. Mostly? And why would they get a bad rap? Evan shrugged. They're venom, I guess. It won't kill a human, but it's been known to rot the skin. I think because of this, people think they're inherently aggressive creatures. It's not true, though. They won't bite if they can avoid it. Katrina's eyes drifted to boxes of S-193. So, what's the product? Evan perused the can he was holding. Supposedly, we had a bad infestation this spring. There's a big woodpile out back, which is kind of a breeding ground for them. Dad said they were crawling all over it. Got bit once, too. Had the skin rot and everything. To get rid of them, he tried a bunch of different bug killers, but nothing did the trick. Worse, he started finding them in the house. In the hampers, under the sheets, behind towels. Ew. I know, Evan said. Dad was furious. Started scouring the internet for military-grade insecticide. Military-grade? Figure a speech, Dillweed. He wasn't looking to violate the Geneva Convention. In any case, he wound up finding some fly-by-night website that sold a product specifically designed for brown recluses. Guaranteed results or your money back. Dad said he bought a bunch, and supposedly it worked like a champ. Within a few days, they were eradicated. Good, Katrina said. I hate spiders. Evan drew close and pressed himself against her. I know. He kissed her on the lips and gave her a playful pat on the butt. Listen. Let me go get our suitcases and stuff so you can get settled in and take a shower. While you do, I'm going to try and track down my old comic books. Katrina returned the kiss. My little geek. My little fraidy cat, he returned. He gave her breast a quick squeeze, then fear and reprisal darted out of the room and up the stairs. Katrina called after him to be prepared to finish what he started, and Evan promised that he would. Money back guaranteed. Evan experienced a flush of euphoria as he unloaded their luggage from the car. He'd done well in finding Katrina. She made him incredibly happy, and he believed he did the same for her. They'd met during their sophomore year at Stanford. After continually crossing paths in their shared English lit program and saddling up to the same bars over and over, Evan finally drummed up the courage to ask her out. She'd said sure, and they had their first date at his favorite seafood joint. Something he later regretted as they both wound up puking and shitting themselves silly. Looking back, it was the undercooked lobster that did them in. Once they had recovered, Katrina suggested they do a do-over. Evan had agreed, and their second outing, a picnic at Heritage Park, had gone swimmingly. By their tenth date, they were using the L word, and before Evan knew it, he was at Arnaldi's buying her a ring. Recalling the pure elation on her face when he had proposed, Evan shut the Malibu's trunk and gazed absently about the neighborhood. About four houses down on his left, he spotted a man milling about his front lawn. The man, whose features were too vague to make out, raised a hand and waved at Evan. Evan waved back and noticed that he and the man were the only two people out and about. The man lowered his hand but remained facing Evan. Evan gave him a nod, then grabbed the luggage and headed back inside. He found Katrina in the downstairs bathroom staring at herself in the mirror. Evan put their suitcases down and joined her. All right, baby, 
he said, hugging her from behind. I'll be up in the attic looking for those comics. Katrina's eyes found his in the mirror. What? Evan said. You're absolutely sure they're going to like me? She asked. Evan pursed his lips. Look, baby, I get that you're a little nervous. I was the same way when I met your folks. I was worried they wouldn't like me because my family's not rich, but they welcomed me with open, loving arms. My parents will do the same, I promise. Just remember not to say anything bad about the Chiefs and you'll be fine. Chiefs? That's baseball, right? Evan pecked her on the cheek. Funny. He pulled away and started up the stairs to the first level. Oh, he said, looking back. In case you get finished before I do, the attic is above the garage, which you get to through the kitchen. You'll see the pull-down ladder. Katrina gave him the thumbs up. Okay there, Sheldon. Evan paused. Was that a Big Bang Theory pot shot? Yes, it was. Hey, everybody's geeky about something. Remember, I've seen all your Fleetwood Mac memorabilia. Katrina affected a hurt expression, flipped him the bird, and shut the bathroom door. Evan's heart swelled. There were a million reasons he loved Katrina. Her obsession with Stevie Nicks was just one of them. You're a lucky guy, he said as he reached the top of the stairs. Don't screw it up. After her shower, Katrina dressed in a more conservative blouse and jeans, then wandered about the house to familiarize herself with it. It was such a different home than the one she had grown up in. Smaller, more rustic, but in a cozy sort of way, which she liked. It was a place where a kid didn't have to walk around on eggshells, worrying about ruining something expensive. She imagined Evan had a pretty happy childhood here, and for that she was a little jealous. The one thing she didn't like about it was its lack of cleanliness. She was by no means a neat freak, but it looked as if the place hadn't been cleaned in weeks. There was grime on the windows and layers of dust on every surface. Wondering if she should broach the subject with Evan, she leisurely made her way out to the garage. The pull-down staircase was precisely where Evan said it would be. Near the back, extended down to the garage's gray cement floor. As Katrina approached it, a string of goofy snickers issued from the space above. Hey, babe? She called up. Still looking at comics? There was a shuffling sound. Then Evan's head appeared at the top of the staircase. Hey, cat, come on up. You gotta see all this stuff. But I just showered. Don't be a wuss, Evan said. Besides, it's actually pretty clean up here. Katrina sighed and commenced up the staircase. Lucky I love you, she said as she stepped up into the attic. Evan just grunted and returned to his comics. Katrina grunted back at him and turned her attention to the attic. It was more spacious than she had expected and more finished, with its sheet-rocked walls and hardwood flooring. Content-wise, it was filled with standard attic fare, boxes, old lamps, and stacks of unused picture frames, along with a pair of those old-timey steamer trunks. One green, the other a faded brown. Evan sat Indian style in the middle of all of it, his box of comics stationed beside him. I'd nearly forgotten about these, he said, gazing at the comic in his lap, the older edition of The Punisher. Katrina took a seat beside him. Forgotten? You only left home two years ago. 
Evan slid the comic back into its clear plastic protector and removed another from the box. This one, an uncanny X-Men with Captain America, Wolverine, and Black Widow on the cover. I only collected comics for a few years back in elementary school. I guess I got bored with it, though, and stopped collecting. Put them in the box, and the box ended up here. Wasn't actually until we got inside the house today that I even remembered I had them. Katrina tasseled his hair as if he had just said something adorable, then glanced back at the two steamer trunks. You know, I've always had a thing for those kinds of trunks. Wouldn't mind having one as a coffee table, when we get our own place, I mean. Evan looked up to see what she was talking about. Oh yeah, they used to be my grandparents. I doubt mom or dad would care if we took one, though. They've been up here since we moved in. I'll ask if you want. I want, Katrina replied. She drifted toward the trunks for closer inspection. Is there anything inside them? Eben shrugged. Take a peek and see. Copy that, sir. As she crossed the hardwood floor, Katrina noticed several more of the Product S-193 boxes. Seeing them, she recalled the spider conversation they had had and began scanning the attic for spider webs. She looked high and low, but curiously didn't see a single one. Guessing the pesticide really had worked, she paused in front of the trunks. They were big sons of bitches, the trunks. The size of beer barrels, and each sported an array of stamps indicating the various destinations they had visited. Katrina smiled at this, opened the leftmost steamer, and looked down at its contents. And kept looking. Um, Evan... She finally said, Yes, sweetums? Weird question, but did your parents own mannequins? Evan cocked his head to the side. Mannequins? Not to my knowledge, why? Katrina closed the trunk and lifted the other's lid. There's another in here, and they're both like covered in, I don't know, some silky material or something. Evan returned his X-Man back into its protective sleeve and ventured over to the trunks. He peered into the one she had opened, then knelt down and swapped his hand across the silky material. The motion cut a rift in the silk, which felt like cotton candy. Within the rift, he could see one of the mannequin's arms. The appendage did not look like it belonged to a mannequin, however. It was grayish and decayed and faintly smelled of rotten meat. Evan stepped back and pinched his nose. As he did, his eye caught sight of a metallic glimmer at the arm's wrist. Katrina saw it too. What is that? She said, pinching her own nose. Evan leaned forward, held his breath, and had a closer look. The glimmer he saw was one of those stainless steel medical alert bracelets. He edged even nearer, and read the inscription, Penicillin Allergy, Diabetic. For a long moment, his mind refused to process what the words meant. When it passed and comprehension came, Evan gasped and stumbled backwards. <laughs> no, it can't be. Katrina took hold of his arm to prevent him from falling over. Baby, what's wrong? What did you see? Dad, he muttered. He has a bracelet just like the one in there. Katrina gazed at him briefly before peering into the open trunk. 
Heaven, you're not... I mean... That can't be. Evan's face went pale and he dropped to his knees, the weight of this awful discovery too heavy for him to bear. Jesus, he said. Someone put my dad in there and left him to rot. A torrent of howls and whys flooded his thoughts, evoking a series of grim conclusions. He automatically began to sort and examine each one, but a jarring realization diverted his attention to the other trunk. Mom? Katrina's eyes widened. Oh, God. No. No, no, no! Evan said, slamming his fist on the hardwood and propelling himself to his feet. Christ! Who the fuck would do something like... He was cut short by a loud clicking noise that erupted beneath them. At the same time, the entire attic floor began to vibrate. Evan and Katrina exchanged bewildered looks, and then Evan understood what was happening. The garage door was opening. Mind going a thousand directions, Evan scrambled over to the attic staircase and frantically searched the assortment of boxes and storage bins for a weapon of some sort. Sticking out of one of the bins was an old aluminum bat. Evan snatched it and glared at Katrina, who hadn't yet responded to the door opening. Cat, he hissed. Cat! Katrina looked at him but said nothing. Someone's pulling in, he said. We've got to get down from here, now! Katrina blinked, snapping out of her spell and rushed over to him. What's happening? Don't know, he whispered. But we'll find out. Now let's go. They quickly descended the staircase. Down in the garage, they found an older model Monoville with tinted windows parked in the rightmost spot. Evan knew the car well. His father's car. Whoever had driven it into the garage was nowhere in sight. Fuming, wanting answers and revenge, Evan gripped the bat tight and held it ready. Where are you? He shouted. What did you do to my parents? Behind them stood a metal workbench strewn with various tools. Katrina snatched a hammer off of one of the shelves, then turned to Evan. Baby? She said, pointing at the Malibu, which sat 30 short feet away in the driveway. The car's right there. Let's go and get the police. Evan flitted a glance at the car. Given all the unknowns, he knew what she was saying was the smart thing to do. But he needed answers. Further, his primal side needed to use the bat on the person responsible for his parents. Evan! Katrina urged. A beat later, the driver's side door of the Bonneville popped open and the garage door began to close. The simultaneous occurrences made Evan and Katrina jump back. And before they could think to make a run for it, the door was all the way down, leaving them trapped inside with the person getting out of the Bonneville. Greetings, said the person, a tall man dressed in a nice gray suit, black leather gloves, and a black fedora. At first glance, they looked a lot like Evan's father. Same high cheekbones, same thin lips, same piercing eyes. The longer Evan stared at them, however, the less the resemblance held. The skin on the man's face, for instance, was far too smooth. 
bearing none of his father's familiar wrinkles and crow's feet. It also bore not a single scar when it should have featured a pair, one along his left temple and another under his left eye, which he had earned in a bar fight on his 21st birthday, so the story went. You're not my father, Evan muttered. The lookalike shut the car door and took a few steps towards Evan, having the distance between them. You are the son, they said in a hoarse voice that sort of sounded like Evan's dad, only much hoarser. A killer also, Evan scowled. Killer? A toothless asymmetric grin spread across the imposter's face. No relevance, they said. The stimulant is everywhere now. Everywhere. Their opaque eyes locked on Evans, and for a long, strange moment they just stood there, staring at one another. As they did, Evan noticed a faint pattern riddling the lookalike's countenance. A pattern consisting of small shapes. Shapes like tiny eights. Or violins. Or maybe fiddles. Fuck me, Evan said. The lookalike's grin broadened slightly at that. Then their entire head disintegrated into a lesion of small independent specks, an effect that made it seem as though they had begun to melt. Within seconds, the suit and fedora collapsed to the ground and the specks came spilling out across the garage floor. Are those spiders? Katrina cried, dropping the hammer. Fiddlebacks, Eben said, flinging his bat at the mass of crawling things. Several got close to his foot, so he stomped down hard on them. There was no crunch as he expected, and when he pulled his boot back, he saw that they were still coming. Aghast, he grabbed Katrina's hand and pulled her towards the garage's back door, which led to the house's fenced-in backyard. What the fuck is happening? Katrina said as they scrambled through the door and out onto the backyard's covered back porch. I don't fucking know, Evan said, eyes scanning the yard closely for signs of other spiders. He was instantly struck by the fact that a brown wasteland of sticks and branches and old logs now existed where the lush green yard had once been. It's one big woodpile, he said, leading Katrina around the side of the house where the fence's gate stood. The gate opened without resistance and Evan ushered his fiancée along the side of the house. As they came upon the driveway, Katrina made a low, keening noise and started repeating, It's not real. It's not real. Over and over. At the front of the Malibu, Evan dug into his pocket and retrieved the key. Thank Christ! He said, half expecting it not to be there, and they clambered into the Malibu. By some miracle, the engine came to life on the first try. Relieved, Evan threw the gear shift in reverse and peeled out of the driveway. Evan, look! Katrina cried. Evan followed where she was pointing and saw people standing in their yards, staring and waving at them as they passed by. People with bland, shifting features. He looked left and discerned more of the same. What is this? Katrina demanded. What the hell is going on? How the fuck can spiders imitate people? I don't know, baby, Evan said. I don't know. We'll figure it out when we- <coughs> Katrina screamed then, 
and Evan saw why. Little brown specks were pouring in through the air vents and were leaping onto their laps. Evan flailed in his seat and swerved off the road. The Malibu jumped the curb, massacred a lawn, and crashed into the side of the house nearest to the end of the street. Somehow, the impact failed to knock both of them unconscious. The airbags deployed as designed, depriving them of that precious gift. Evan had just gotten his wits about him when a garbled voice drifted in through the shattered driver's side window. It won't hurt very much, the voice said. Not much. <laughs> Evan turned his head and observed the man lingering by the car. The man's face was undulating. Evan attempted to murmur a plea of mercy, but found his mouth full of fiddlebacks. With a whimper, he tried again to gaze at the man, to beseech him with a pleading look. But then specks of brown clotted his vision, and the world went dark and silent. He reached his hand out to find Katrina, his love, but found only a heap of moving, biting things. And that was Product S193 by author W.B. Stickle. A good reminder to be responsible with household chemicals and also to be nice to spiders, just in case, you know. A little about the author. W.B. Stickle lives with his family in central New York. By day, he works for the Air Force doing geeky communication stuff. By night, he reads and writes as much as life allows. His short fiction has appeared in over a dozen magazines and anthologies, to include Sanitarium Magazine and the Lovecraft-inspired collection Whispers from the Abyss. His stories have also appeared as podcast episodes on Tales to Terrify, Nocturnal Transmissions, Horror Hill, Drew Blood's Dark Tales, most notably of course, and Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. You can find WB on Facebook, at facebook.com forward slash WB Stickle. His profile says he was born in 1940, but that's got to be a goof. Even if it's true, he's still younger than Frankie Valley. Thanks, W. And do old Drew Blood a favor, would you? Subscribe to his podcast wherever you do your listening and leave him a five-star review and a kind word, even if you're listening on YouTube. He needs soldiers on all fronts to win this battle and he appreciates it. To hear a premium ad-free edition of tonight's and all the other episodes, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click Patrons in the upper menu. You'll find yourself at chillintalesfordarknights.com where you can become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to their entire audio archive, all ad-free and available to download or stream. Thank you for your time and for supporting our sponsors. When you support our sponsors, you support this show. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chillin' Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all the latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with them each and every week. 
Oh, and you can find Drew Blood on Facebook and Instagram, and sometimes Twitter. The Drew Blood's Dark Tales podcast is accepting submissions, friend. If you've got a story or two you'd like to be featured on the show, send it to drewbloodhorror at gmail.com. If selected, you'll get the full treatment, 10 bananas. Well, I'm afraid this is where we part ways, at least till next week. So grab a drink for the road, friend, but don't go bumping into any trees. You show me the man, and I'll show you the crime. I'd like to say hi to a few more listeners of the show. So, Vincent Vega, loved you in Pulp Fiction, by the way. Marty Wood, and my homie who's been making comments since the Evil Idol competition, Mook, the one-man mafia. Thanks for all the kind comments, y'all. Keep them coming. I really appreciate them. So, Vincent Vega, Marty Wood, and Moot, the one-man mafia. May the wind be at your back, and may the road rise up to meet you. Remember, the average person swallows eight spiders a year in their sleep. Just something to keep in mind. Sweet dreams. Oh, yeah. And go fuck yourselves. <laughs> Good night, y'all. <laughs>